0: thought we'd start tonight is uh, using this uh, narrated Bible in chronological order to go through the four Gospels together and at the same time we're doing that we'll also look at a harmony of them and I've got another book that has a harmony of the four and then we'll study concerning the manuscripts and the, the whole bits so far as the, the four themselves and uh, what I'll do tonight some of the material that I'll give is in the historical interlude in this narrated Bible. And it's a, it's a really a good short synopsis of the material. And so I'll go ahead and, and cover that as the introduction. And then if you go back and read it on your own, I think between the orally, the and then getting it, you have it you know, fixed in your mind in a pretty good way. The uh, Old Testament ends right about 425, approximately 425, 425 years before Christ. And we've got that period of time where there is absolutely no written revelation or no scripture uh, until the start of the New Testament. During this period of time, there's several things that are happening. Uh, First of all, take your mind back to when Israel, the ten tribes, were defeated in 721-722 BC and carried into captivity by Assyria. And so Assyria has defeated the ten tribes, and of course that come about after the ten tribes and the two, Judah and Benjamin, had split. Well then between 7 and 20 on down to uh, about 605 <coughs> we have just Judah and uh, that uh, they are carrying on the, the principles of God and teaching the law and they are caught up in idolatry and sin despite the Example they've had of Israel being carried into captivity and then in 605 Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes against Jerusalem and really he, he sends his army against Jerusalem three times in 605 And that is when Daniel was carried into Babylonian captivity and then in 597 or 598 BC and then that's when Ezekiel is carried into Babylonian captivity and then in 586 Nebuchadnezzar sends his army against it, and this time Jerusalem is destroyed. And so a large amount of the Jews have been carried into Babylonian captivity uh, beginning, or in this period from 605 to 586 BC. The captivity is going to last for about 70 years, and Daniel lives through it. And of course, uh, he interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And remember in that dream of Nebuchadnezzar, that we have Nebuchadnezzar being taught four great world kingdoms. Uh, That would be the Babylonian, and then the Medo-Persian, and the Grecian, and the Roman Empire. And he says in the days of the fourth world empire, the Lord God would set up a kingdom that would not be destroyed. And so the Jews have this book of Daniel, and they know of this prophecy of this kingdom to come in the time of this fourth great world empire, this messiah to come who's going to set up his kingdom. Okay, Daniel also gave other prophecies concerning uh, Medo-Persia, concerning Greece, uh, concerning Alexander the Great, the death of Alexander, the way it would be the kingdom would then be divided up into uh, four groups, four pieces after that and then that fourth world empire that would come on the scene. All of this was forecast in Daniel. Well after Daniel we come on down and we have uh, the Medo-Persians who defeat Babylon and they defeat it in perfect fulfillment of prophecies in the Bible for example in Isaiah 44 beginning with verse 27 uh, almost a perfect uh, telling of what actually took place when uh, Babylon fell Isaiah 13, uh, Isaiah spoke of the downfall of Babylon and of course Jeremiah forecast that it would be 70 years and so Medo-Persia defeats Babylon and with the defeat of Babylon the edict is passed by Cyrus to allow the Jews to go free and go back and to rebuild their city okay now and what we're saying here is a matter of historical fact that we can verify with sources outside, outside the Bible but now after they were carried into captivity during this period of 70 years A generation dies, another generation dies on the scene, and see the truth is the majority of the Jews never did go back to Judah, and they remained scattered, okay, and this is what we mean when we speak of the Jews in dispersion, that they have been scattered. The name Jew itself was coined during this period of time, that uh, see at that time the ten tribes had been defeated, and there was just Judah and Benjamin. And so the people that defeated them, the Babylonians, gave them the name Jew. And so up until that time, the name Jew had never been used. And because of being from Judah, yeah, they was given them the name. They were given the name Jew. So we come on down, and from the uh, after the seventy years of captivity, and we have the going back and restoring and rebuilding the city, uh, the temple, the walls, and that's where, of course, Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and Ezra were all involved in the building of the walls and the the temple first the, the temple the walls and then also Ezra with the restoring of the law and then the last prophet that spoke to Israel and the message recorded was Malachi and Malachi about 425 and keep in mind now this is uh almost 200 years since Nebuchadnezzar first came against them and it's at a time when uh, Israel, the Jew, that in his scattered state has been influenced by a lot of other things uh, among the nations where he'd been scattered. And so Malachi ends with a strong prophecy of this Messiah to come, this deliverer. And also he spoke of the forerunner that would prepare the way for him. Well then after Malachi, we've got an interlude there of this about 400 years coming on down to Jesus. All right, now what happens is we, we see some influences on the Jews that are going to help us to understand the state they're in when we come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the time that Jesus came on the scene. And we can go back now with hindsight, and we can see how these things were used in the providence of God. All right, first we see the, the influence of the Medo-Persians on the Jews. And we see the, in the not only did the Jews take the message of a Messiah and the message of their law to the world, But the jews in turn were influenced and so the medo-persians had a developed sense of demonology you know the belief in demons and the belief in the spirit world and all in various ways they also had a concept of god where they believed in god but god was kind of a loaf in other words he wasn't a personal god that was involved in the affairs and all and so we began to see a little of this influence among some of the jews a belief in god but not a personal touch itself. And also, the, on the other hand, the thing with the demons and all. We began to see some influence on the Jews with that, with that line of thinking. Well, the Medo-Persians are defeated by Alexander the Great. And Alexander then in, does something that becomes very important. In conquering the known world of that day, Alexander conquered in both the East and the West, and for the first time in the history of the world, we have the Uniting of the East and the West. In other words he's, he's conquered all the way to the Ganges River in India and then on the other hand he's conquered the Medo-Persian and the former Babylonian Empire so the East and West have been pulled together of the known civilized world as a result of the, the conquering of Alexander the Great. Well he does something else. He spreads the Greek culture and along with the Greek culture one of the most important things that Alexander does is spread the Koine Greek. The Koine Greek was a developed language among the common people, and every place that Alexander went, the Greek language went. Well, what this would mean, as, as time went on, that by the time that the New Testament was ready to be written, by the time the New Testament was ready to be written, we would have a language that was, that was worldwide. And so that educated people all over would speak that Greek language. And so it was going to become the ideal thing to put the New Testament in. But something else was going to happen eventually and that is the Greek would become a dead language. And so that uh, we have a language now being spread worldwide and a a language that is really going to be a very good language to put this message in. I mean uh, that has the proper words and everything like that. And at the same time it's worldwide. Okay. So Alexander does this and it prepares the way for something to come even though nobody understands it at, at that time. Well Alexander dies and then uh, his empire is divided up into four different groups and uh, among these groups one in particular, the solutions become uh, very important in the in the, their stand uh, against the Jews and we run into a guy somewhere around 175 by the name of Antagonist Epiphanes And he is a pagan, and uh, he will be very instrumental in some persecution uh, of the Jewish nation that will cause a lot of fighting and a lot of things to take place at the temple, and and some things that Daniel had forecast uh, about uh, things that was going to take place at the temple that we're going to see fulfilled in this man, Antigonus Epiphanes. Antigonus Epiphanes... uh, in doing the things he did at the temple, including offering a pig to a pagan uh, god, the idol of which he had set up there at the temple, uh, in the things that he'd done to the city and all, he would pull a revolt of the Jews against him. Okay, Now, right about this time, uh, Rome was allowing Antagonist uh, uh, the They were the strong people coming on the scene but they were allowing him a little leeway because they were still in the process of semen in their power throughout the rest of the world and defeating other powers. Once they accomplished that then they would come in and conquer Judah, okay? Pompey would lead the Roman army in to conquer Judah and this was somewhere around 63 BC, somewhere in that area. Now, what has happened up to this point we have the Greek culture that's been spread before that there was the Medo-Persians, the Babylonians, but notice the influence on uh, the Jews to this point. First of all, they have lost their language. The Jews, down at the time of Jesus, simply no longer speak the Hebrew language. Uh, in Babylon they have primarily picked up the Aramaic language. And so Jesus and the disciples spoke the Aramic language. And not only do they lose their language about the the only ones who could read their scriptures in the Hebrew were the scholars. You know the common people couldn't read it. But now a lot of them were also learning <clears throat> when Alexander came on the scene and spread the Greek language a lot of them learned the Greek language. Okay so the next big influence that we find on, on Israel is that uh, between 2 AD and 250 AD or 2, uh, BC I should say 2 AD and 250 BC we have the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek and for about 300 years this will be the primary Bible for the Jews. So the Hebrew scriptures are translated into the Greek language about 280 to 250 BC and this book is referred to as the Greek Septuagint. It will be the primary Bible that's in use when Jesus is here on this earth. Uh, The book that would be quoted from by most of the Jews in the days of Jesus would be the Greek Septuagint. Uh, so we have then the translation from the Hebrew into the Greek uh, in about 280 to 250 BC. And then something else begins to happen. As as a result of the influence of the Greek culture on the Jews, there are other there are devout Jews who become very concerned about this. And so we see little sects <coughs> that rise up within Judaism. And among these sects is a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, were for going back to the law and not being influenced by the Greek culture and they were referred to as the separated ones. Now the Pharisees began to write down the traditions, in fact the traditions you read about in the New Testaments, that, that the Jews seemed to put on a par with the law. These traditions were recorded in a, a book called the Midrash and the Pharisees uh, originated this and over a period of time they began to put as much weight and even more weight on those traditions uh, as they did on the law itself. And a lot of those uh, traditions were, were interpretations of the law. In other words not just the law but their actual interpretation of the law itself. Another group that arose during this period of time was the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees interesting enough that although on the one hand they seem to be the liberals they reject all the traditions of the Pharisees and adhere only to the law uh, contained in the first five books but the, keep in mind now that the Jews have been a conquered people for a long period of time and the Sadducees seem to have lost hope concerning the Messiah and, and living forever and so therefore they have rejected uh, the concept of life after death and so the Sadducees believe that at death your soul dies also and there's no life after death and they have been influenced by various philosophies that they have come in contact with and they have bought into that. That your soul dies at death and they bought into this philosophy and but yet on the other hand they, they hang onto the law and believe that law comes from God. Alright so the Sadducees come about during this period of time, and the Pharisees, and these are two sects. Another sect that comes on the scene is a group called the Zealots. And they were Jews that were looking for a Messiah to come and overthrow, overthrow this, the Roman government that now had them. You see, in, in beginning with Pompey, Rome conquers Judah, and will have control all during the time of Jesus. And so the Zealots were fervently looking Uh, for a messiah to come and he was going to be a savior and a deliverer but he's going to deliver them from Rome and going to restore Israel and and they began to build this concept of a messiah to come who would be like David in the sense that he would deliver them from surrounding countries and lead them in in the fight for their freedom and in that sense be a savior so the pharisees uh, uh, are going in one direction as a Jewish sect the Sadducees have their little slant, and then of course you have the Zealots, and another group that comes about in this period of time is a group called the Essenes, and the Essenes are a group that emphasizes purity and holiness of life, and they just simply leave, uh, you know, disassociate themselves from from the other Jews. Now the interesting thing is that each of these sects think that they are the, they are the come to think they are the true Jew, they are the right ones. And so they all started out as Jews, and we see different influences, and what we see there is something very similar to what you see in Christianity. After its inception, we find the dividing up into sects, and then the first thing you know, different of these little sects say they are the true church, and everybody else is, is, in a, is a falsehood. Well, these Jewish sects came that way. Another sect was the, referred to as the Herodians, and they were all involved in the politics of that day. And so each of these sects thought they had the truth. And each of them had a different slant on the Messiah and the kingdom and the resurrection and and things of that nature. Okay, now, after Rome conquered, Rome appointed a king in Israel. Remember, nobody was qualified by the law of Moses to be a king in Israel except a true Israelite that was of the house of David. And that was the only one qualified. You had to be a true Jew and of that particular house to be qualified to be king. Rome appointed Herod. All right? Herod definitely was not a Jew. Okay? And he is appointed to be king. Of course, you have a lot of resentment. And Herod knows that according to Jewish thinking and Jewish law, he does not belong as king and he's there only because of the appointment of Rome. All right? You can begin to see this suspicion then that will take place when Herod hears about this king of the Jews that's born, and then wants to kill all the young children. Well, see, the Jews resented Herod. And and Herod even tried to win their favor. And the temple was rebuilt under the leadership of Herod. And, and he was rebuilding the temple, not because he was a religious person himself, but he honestly was trying to win the favor of the Jews. He knew he had no right to that position, and he had it as an appointed way. So he tried to win their favor by rebuilding that That temple, and that's, of course, the temple that we have in the time of Christ. But Herod is very scared. He knows he doesn't belong there. He's very suspicious of everybody. And so what we see in the personality of Herod is a personality that is recorded that perfectly fits the individual that would uh, try to kill, in fact did kill, the two-year-olds and under among the Jewish babies. Uh, Herod killed his favorite wife, had her executed because he became suspicious of her, uh, so far as her concern for the power that he had. Uh, he killed his own mother and he was, had a reputation of being just paranoid that he was always looking over his shoulder and and at the same time was very concerned because he knew that in the eyes of the Jews he didn't belong in that position. So what I'm saying is the, the personality of the Herod that we read about uh, perfectly fits the Pick the, the character that we come in contact with uh, later on in, in the Gospels itself. And so we have a f- whole family that develops. And a Herod will die and another one will replace him. But they are the appointed king by Rome. Okay, now, at the time we reach the point now, for Jesus, we, we have the, the four sects there, four or five sects. And then we have the Greek culture that is in the process of influencing the nation of Israel and some are really fighting that and some are really being influenced. We can see the influence of the the Medo-Persians and their thinking on the Jews and wherever they've been we can see some influence on their thinking. Some are really looking for a Messiah but they're looking for a Messiah like David that would really deliver them in a physical sense. Some have given up and they're really not looking for a Messiah and they're perfectly at home and wherever, wherever they're at. Some, like the Sadducees, have rejected the whole concept of a re- of a resurrection and life, life after death. All right, now, during this period of time, we have the, the Jewish writings of the books that we call the Apocrypha books. And a lot of what we learn about the Jews during this period of time is in these Apocrypha books. Now, these Apocrypha books, I'll give you the names of some of them, and again, you can read this when you read the interlude. Uh, First, Esdras is one of them. It's a Greek name for Ezra, and it's a historical record from the end of the exile until the completion of the temple. And it duplicates portions of Ezra, (coughs) Nehemiah, and the Chronicles, and then adds stories on it to try and explain things, okay? Second Esdras is of Latin origin, and it, it really dates about the first three centuries A.D., and again it gives a lot of visions that are very similar to what you read in in Daniel. Alright? Then you have the book of Tobit, which is a a religious fiction story. Okay? Then you have the book of Judith, also religious fiction, and it goes back and even deals with, uh, in fact there's mentioning there of Nebuchadnezzar as king over the Assyrians, which of course he was king over the Babylonians, but it shows the historical inaccuracy of the book itself. Then you have additions to the book of, es- of Esther. You've got another book called The Wisdom of Solomon that is very similar to Ecclesiastes, written about 40 to, or 50 to 40 B.C. And then there's the book of Baruch, claiming to be the writing of the man who was the servant of Jeremiah. And then, uh, among some of the others, probably the most valuable to us is the first book of Maccabees. It contains the history of the Jewish people in Judea in the period from 175 to 132 B.C. Okay? And what we learn about antagonist epiphanies from the Jewish standpoint is in 1 Maccabees. 1 Maccabees is a good book to read. I think that when a person reads the Bible, that 1 Maccabees, uh, if you read it as one of those books in between the Old and New Testament, and, and you have in your mind the book of Daniel and everything like that, and you can appreciate and also learn some things there. And also 2 Maccabees are some things. Now, each of these books have some things that are truth and some things that are fiction. The best historical record of the whole bunch is 1 Maccabees. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, to this day, accepts those as part of the Scripture. The majority of Christians uh, in the Protestant world have rejected it. Now, the reason for the rejection of that is that there's several. Number one, the Jews in the days of Christ never included those books as part of the inspired writings. In other words, uh, the writings were the same 39 books that we have. Now, to the Jew, it was only 22 books because of the way he put them together. But it was the same Old Testament that we've got, and so the Jew that lived all through that period of time never, never incorporated that as part of the scripture. Uh, and by the way, in him not doing that, it helps us to appreciate that they knew something about credentials. And, and you just couldn't claim to be part of the scriptures and get there. It had to meet a very strict test. And these books didn't meet it. But they read them for its historical worth. And it deals with some of the wars and the fights that take place, some of the, uh, uh, some of the influences of the pagan world on the Jews and the things the Jews were doing to combat that. Some of the things were written to uh, promote the patriotism of the Jews during this period of time. The overall tenor of the books is moral. In other words, the overall tenor is a promotion of morality. All right, not only did the Jew not accept these books as inspired, but the books contain obvious fiction. There are times when they have contradictions with themselves contradictions with historical facts that we know about, and contradictions with the scripture. In fact I'd have to say the best that uh, they did for me, I took one course in college years back, uh, on the apocrypha book, and the best it did for me was to help me to appreciate even more of the scriptures. There is a tremendous difference. Uh, in other words, you if you read that this is typical Jewish writing and, and the, typical writing of that day, and you read that and compare it with these books that we have in the canon, there's just no comparison uh, from the standpoint of the integrity, the, the historicity, the, the simplicity and truthfulness uh, of the way the account is put down, the, the exaggeration as opposed to the lack of exaggeration, the, the emphasis on truth as opposed to something that is willing to use uh, fiction. There just simply is no, no comparison whatsoever. Some of the stuff is, is literally outlandish, you know, that takes place in, in those books also there's nothing in those books that even purports to be prophecy that is fulfilled there's just something there's nothing there that purports to be or is prophecy in any sense that's fulfilled later on in the new testament jesus and the apostles will never quote from the apocrypha books and will never recognize them as so they use the, the traditional jewish bible as, as being the canon or inspired they never quote from uh, or use these as inspired sources whatsoever, and no Jews of that day did. But even though that was the case when they put the canon together after the first century, Christians used these apocryphal books just simply to learn what they could about that period of time in between. And it wasn't until the fourth century AD when uh, Jerome, in his Bible, Latin Bible, put it all together the Old Testament. and the New New Testament, and also these books, that we have them all together in one volume. But Jerome made it very clear, you know, that he did not accept those as inspired. But then over a period of time, they came to be accepted, and then at the statement of a Roman Pope, they got uh, got themselves in the canon, and were accepted then as inspired by God. Whether the Catholic scholar today would really believe that, I don't I don't really know. Uh, I would have a hard time believing that a Catholic scholar who has read those books, and read the other books and all, would, in, would really put that on a par. But uh, to, me, to my uh, understanding, uh, they're in a predicament because of, they believe the Pope is infallible on religious matters, and so they're stuck with that, whether they want it or not. But on the other hand, they make good secular writings to read and learn and a lot of what we know about this period of time between the Old and the New Testament we learn. Yeah, during, in, in those particular books. Now...
1: You said that Jerome put the Old Testament, New Testament, getting met the Old Testament in those um, Apocrypha books,
0: right? Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha
1: books. Oh, okay.
0: 400, uh, see that's 400 AD. But he put it in the Latin version, translated into Latin. But he's got the Old Testament, the New Testament, and also the Apocrypha books. And uh, a lot of the, the early Bibles you know, used to have those uh, the Apocrypha books but they were you know always acknowledged as something that was, it was there to read but they were not inspired by God they were not put, in, put on the same part. Now another thing that's happened during this period of time is the development of the Jewish synagogue that the temple's been destroyed the Jews have been scattered and so the Jews develop a system of studying the Bible where they build these buildings that they refer to as synagogues. And in these synagogues they would come and study the Torah of the law, they would sing, and they would pray, and they would worship God, and they would have their fellowship. But there was no sacrifices. Keep in mind the sacrifice could only take place in the temple. Okay, the synagogue will be important because these synagogues have been built throughout the entire civilized world. And they will be sources of instruction to the Jews and also to the Gentiles in, in many cases, all, all over that Roman world. And so because of their, their importance, uh, keep in mind, everybody back then didn't have a copy of the Bible. There's no print and press. And so the synagogues were very important in, in the sense that wherever the Jew had been scattered, they came together and here is where the scholars taught them the law and read the law to them. So they, they became very important from that standpoint. Alright, in the synagogue is where we develop a group of people called rabbis. And they were people that were studied and considered to be experts on the law, and then received that title of rabbi. And they actually began to replace the priest uh, in, the, in the instruction of the people. Okay? They were just, they were specialists in the study of the law itself, and would have uh, become very highly esteemed among the common people. Well you can also see that with the the common people limited to getting their information you know at the synagogue and from the, the rabbis and the lawyers, the interpreters of the law, they were limited to whatever interpretation went out. And if these oral, if these traditions were taught at the synagogue, which they were, then you can see how the common people easily had the traditions and the law all blended together in their mind. And this is what Jesus later on will mean when he tells the Pharisees that you heap heavy burdens on them. And that they were they had made the law even more difficult to keep. And they had uh, heaped many of their principles and traditions on the mind of the common people. And it was hard in their mind to separate it. And that's why when Jesus tried to make it clear to them in Matthew 23 that when they said in Moses' seat, you know, whatever Moses says, you do. Uh, but he made it very clear in his teaching that these traditions are in no sense bound on you. Okay, the the language, the uh, culture, the development of the synagogues, all of this now is, is preparing the way for the time that Christ would come. All right, now something else happens. It's interesting to me that he uh, mentions this because we've talked about it uh, somewhat before. Let's see if I can, uh, oh yeah. Judea is uh, not greatly affected by these Roman infightings, and Herod retains his control over Judea under Octavian. In 27 BC, the Roman Senate gives Octavian the title of Augustus, and it is this Augustus Caesar who gets credit for founding the Roman Empire with its Pax Romana, or Roman Peace. For the next two centuries, the civilized world will enjoy unprecedented peace prosperity, for the most part good civil government under Roman rule. And so, beginning in 27 BC and going for two centuries, the world will have unprecedented peace. In other words, there's never been a time in the history of the world, and of course we're talking about the civilized world where the majority of mankind is, where you have this kind of peace. And the reason will be because Rome was in control. Well, when Jesus made the statements about the destruction of Jerusalem and give us one of the signs wars and rumors of war uh, this is uh, somewhere around 30 uh, AD or, and uh, 30, 30, uh, 30 AD and so this starting with Augustus is 27 BC so for almost 60 years you had a period of peace at this time we'll see there would be the wars and the rumors of war but then Rome would <coughs> defeat Israel and once they defeated Israel and they got a strong man back on the throne, and, and this would happen. Well, then everything would calm down, and Rome would have control again. And this would go on for a period of about two centuries that Rome would control the civilized world. All right, now, what this means, though, with Rome controlling, and no wars going on, and you have it, and having a period of peace, and Rome controlling the entire civilized world, well, this was going to be ideal for the spreading of the good news. Uh, if there was war it would be terrible but if you were a Roman citizen you could travel anywhere you want so no better man than the Apostle Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles the Rome, Romans also built were known for their roads that they built connecting all these places together so that their armies could march on and there could be trade and they could collect, easily collect their taxes now all from all from all the places and so Rome will build these tremendous roads Rome will spread their law uh, the Christians will actually have the protection of Rome in the in the early years. And so everything is, is set uh, for, the, for the gospel. On top of that, we've got the Greek language that's been spread. We've got these Jewish synagogues that are spread all over. But also, we've reached a point where a lot of Jews are looking very strongly for the Messiah at the time that Jesus comes. But they know from the prophecy of Daniel that it should be right about in that period of time. But, although they're looking for him, They've been a very oppressed people for hundreds of years now. And so they are looking for a deliverer. And they were fanatically looking for somebody to deliver them from Rome, to allow them to have their city and their country, and they were looking for a man like David. And this would be why that Jesus would be such an absolute disappointment to the majority of the Jews. He just simply wasn't the strong, physical person like David who would come with a sword and lead an army in rebellion against Rome. And in not being that type of person, since that's what they wanted, they were going to find it very very difficult to accept him. Okay, now, we come now to the, to the uh, birth of Jesus, and his life and his teaching, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, let's note some things about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John although we sometimes refer to them as biographies and I have done so in the past I really don't know that that is accurate and I know that the man that put the notes together in this Bible you know doesn't believe that is the accurate way to refer to them the the accounts are there for primarily one reason and that is to produce faith in Jesus as the Son of God in other words no one of the four really go at his life from the standpoint of, of, of the way a biographer would approach somebody's life. There's no physical description of him. We have a period between uh, uh, his birth and a few situations at his birth until 12 years of age when absolutely nothing is said. We don't know anything about him. And then we have one little incident mentioned when he was 12 years of age and then there's nothing until he's 30. And so he gets to be 30 and there's the mentioning of his birth. One incident at 12 and why am I always 30 years of age? We don't know anything. Between 12 and 30. Well, then he begins his ministry. And we really have a difficult time figuring exactly how long. Scholars debate whether it was two and a half or three and a half years. Now, the majority of the scholars believe that his ministry was three and a half years. That's my persuasion. But I'm saying it, it's nothing that you, it, it's very, you've got to read very carefully concerning the feast and the Passovers that they attend and try to figure out from there but the writers just really don't go out of their way. It, it just is not a big thing to them. And so of the life of Jesus, they zero in on about three and a half years, and that's it. But of, of, of that material that zeroes in on about three and a half years of his life, 25% of that, think of the four books, 25% of that is on the last week in his life. So 25% of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John deals with one week in his life okay when you look at the rest of the book the other three quarters you are dealing with far far less than a year in the total number of days that are hit upon and so you just have little isolated glimpse of jesus you have jesus teaching the multitude jesus teaching the 12 jesus traveling to J- jerusalem and teaching his disciples along the way uh, Jesus at the temple, Jesus cleansing the temple, uh, Jesus confronting the Pharisees, and a few instances like uh, Jesus and his contact with John the Baptist, uh, uh, Jesus in the situation in the upper room, you know, with, uh, where he institutes the Lord's Supper and all. But I'm saying there, there is nothing there that, that is revealed like you would do a biography. You have these little isolated situations. And you have the miracles that take place and are recorded, and you have his teaching, and you have certain things that are happening, and the disciples now being developed during this period of time. Okay, now, there's some interesting things that about Jesus in the, uh, that are revealed in the four Gospels. Number one, when we read that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, On the one hand, that was definitely prophesied by the prophet. Micah 5 and verse 2, he'd be born in Bethlehem of Judea, that a ruler would come out of there. But the interesting thing is that it's a very insignificant place. And there had to be some unique things happen for Jesus to be born there. That although Jesus' parents were from Judea, at the time when Mary conceived him, Uh, they were living in Nazareth in other words Joseph and Mary's home was in Nazareth and at this time Palestine has been divided up into uh, Galilee and then you have Judah, uh, Judah and then you have Samaria and so Samaria Galilee and Judah represent the land of Palestine and Nazareth is a city in Galilee and Galilee, of course, is away from Jerusalem and the center of the Jewish religious service. And Nazareth, Nazareth was not well thought of at all in religious circles. And so although his parents are there, there is an edict that's passed to uh, take a census. And it's, it's that edict to take a census where everybody would go back to their home that leads to his being born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then also... The prophet had said, Isaiah, that his teaching would begin in Galilee of the Gentiles. And so a very unique thing takes place to cause him to be born in Bethlehem. And then also an interesting situation when he comes back and his teaching actually begins in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, another interesting thing, as the apostles are called, the apostles are from Galilee. Uh, to the best that we can figure out, the, the Apostle Paul was the only one that was not from Galilee. So it's interesting that here is here is uh, Jerusalem, the center of all Jewish religious thought. And this is where the temple is. Not a single one of the twelve Apostles are from Jerusalem. that They are from Galilee. Another thing that's going to become interesting is, as he calls the Apostles, they're not the type of people that we would expect the Messiah to call uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were common fishermen, uh, not well-educated people. In fact, we read in Acts that the educated people marveled at their life of education, and yet they were speaking and, and doing these things. Matthew was a publican. Uh, nobody, uh, the publicans were spoke of in the same breath as the harlots. They were disfellowshipped by the rest of the Jews. They had nothing to do with them, and so here Jesus... Uh, carries on enough conversation with one of the tax collectors that he converts him and and he leaves that profession. So here we've got a very loose loose group here, Uh, not a well-educated group, a group from Galilee, and these are the ones that he has chosen to be the apostles. No educated people among them, no Pharisee, uh, no rabbi. Uh, The very people that you think that he would have chose are not the people that become apostles at this time. So this is the setting now at the time that jesus is born all right now although we definitely have other historical sources that bear in various ways on on these events that take place all that we know of the teaching of jesus and his personality is in matthew mark luke and john and that's interesting too that uh and and actually uh, that i think in many ways that you can see the wisdom of god there that uh that uh, from the standpoint of of uh, the contradictions and things of that nature, but all that we know uh, really of that personality and that teaching is in, is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And anybody that is going to know anything about Jesus as a person and from the standpoint of his personality, uh, his life, they're going to have to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now we can go to other sources and we can read that he lived And we can go to other sources and read about John the Baptist and and, and John the Baptist's relation with Herod. Uh, We can read statements concerning his apostles. We can read that he was executed and that the Christians thought he had risen from the dead. You can read about the impact of Christianity and how it spread. But you cannot read about the teaching of Jesus and his life and his ministry except in those four simple accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, as we go through here, uh, reading it in this book, he starts with the uh, birth of Jesus. In fact, he uses the introduction to each account, blends it all together, and then as he goes through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what he will do is whenever they are recording a same account, he will take the one that is the fullest and then supplement it with the others. And so if Luke has the fullest account of this particular miracle, then Luke will be what he uses and then he'll supplement it with whatever uh, detail that maybe Matthew has that Luke does not have. And then on, on another incident in the in the ministry of Jesus, if Matthew has the fullest account, then he'll use Matthew's account and then he will supplement it. And in the, for example, when we deal with the birth of Christ, obviously the fullest account is in Luke and so and then of course we have a lot in Matthew uh, nothing in Mark and nothing in John other than something that goes back before his birth and so he will use that and then just supplement it with the with the other now he also tells you at the uh, beginning that it is very difficult to be absolutely sure of the perfect chronology here that you can use uh, a guide and there are certain things there that will help us out but there is nobody that can do this in such a way that he is absolutely 100% sure of the chronology, but you can be pretty sure of most of it and what you're not, it really doesn't matter. You've got the teaching and all but still, by putting it in, the, in a realm in which we are are sure of some and then pretty sure of others, we can at least do a pretty good job of getting a chronological setting here. There are some times that an event happens where two writers have it recorded maybe in a different place or in a little different way. And you have to try to determine whether this event took place uh, two different times, you know, therefore it was a little bit different, or where each one is recording the same thing but just noticing different details than the other did. And sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, which is is the case on that. For example, together and, and made it appear as if that was one long discourse there, that's pretty hard to figure out but what we are going to see is a remarkable harmony with all the apparent differences and even some apparent contradictions you're going to see a remarkable harmony and a harmony that that literally scholars all through the century have recognized could not exist except that these guys were dealing with truth and also being guided by a central source the apparent contradictions that we're going to notice are very important because they're going to show that obviously these four guys didn't get together and just concoct something, because there's there's too many things that are that are different, or are, are an apparent contradiction that obviously you wouldn't even have, uh, you know, if you, if you were getting together to con- concoct something in that way. Now it's interesting, in some of the things I think that we can appreciate as we go through here on in 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 judging it for its truthfulness, and to show you how the human mind can do this, uh, you know, the publicity that. Has been recently over uh, uh, Kentucky in basketball, and the various charges against them, and their best players not playing right now because there's been a charge that uh, he was dishonest in taking or cheated on taking these ACT tests. Now it hasn't been proven, and there's a possibility that even though they believe that he did, that they won't be able to prove it, and he'll be okay. But here's what caused them to think that. He and a, another person who was taking the test, who's also on the team. The test had 219 questions, and of the 219 questions, there was only 8 that they answered different. Well, now there's 8 there, notice now there's 8 contradictions out of 219, and that purports to be what, about 97% uh, concurrence. Well, if you were taking a a test where everybody had just studied 219 spelling words or something, that wouldn't be a big deal. But when you're taking a rather difficult test that is multiple choice, and you've got four or five choices on every answer, and you've got two completely different people who have made totally different grades in school and have totally different personalities, one black and one white, and then they show up with a test that there's only eight different answers out of 219, and neither one of them blew the test away. Well then, obviously, you can see why they think that there was some cheating that went on there. Well, to be honest, uh, I couldn't be convinced that there wasn't something. I don't believe it's mathematically uh, possible that I think the, the, the probability rate, yeah, the probable rate uh, w- would be too high. I just don't believe that two people are going to sit down that are that different and with that kind of background and take that kind of test and only have eight different answers out of 219. Now there's a possibility he'll get off because they can't prove it, but by the same token, it'll be in the category of something that everybody knows. But see, they, they would say there's still that mathematical probability. Now, with that line of thinking, I want to say that when we evaluate evidence, uh, that the kind that we're going to look at when you compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the various writings, you, you get into that same type of thing and, and we need to learn how to deal with this in talking to others, you can get into things that you honestly know, and, and you know that it just couldn't be otherwise, but yet would not meet a scientific criteria of absolute proof, okay? And, and you're going to get into something that's much more impressive than what I just mentioned with in that, in that test, but still that it would be in this category of the overwhelming preponderance of evidence is such that you can know this, but yet from the standpoint of some empirical uh, scientific evidence, you may not have exactly what somebody wants in that particular area. But we're going to deal with a whole lot of material, and before we're through we're going to have some things in that direction too. But still, I think that's a good example of, to give to people when you talk about the harmony of the Gospels and, and its mark of truthfulness that even on a simple thing like this involving two, well what now if four people had taken that test? And four people take that very difficult test and there's only been eight or ten answers that are different between the four of them. Well you can see it's, it's bad enough with two that he's off the team right now. With four, nobody would believe it. Nobody. And so what I'm saying is that the kind of harmony that we're going to see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about his personality, and his teaching, and his character, and the miracles, and the prophecies, and the events. Harmony on, on, on things where they're dealing with the same situation. Harmony on, on in areas where they're dealing with different situations, like one is recording a teaching that's not in the others, But yet it's the same type of teaching. There's no contradiction in principle with what you're reading. We're going to find this over and over again. On the other hand, the contradictions are going to be an apparent nature. They're they're going to be the type of thing that you would have because of different people with different personalities that have looked at a certain situation. And so we'll say, hey, there seems to be a difference here. But then when you look at that, you'll be able to find explanations for that. Uh, are possible explanations for it but those apparent contradictions will be there and the apparent contradictions are just as important as the harmony because they help to show that there was nobody there that was in collusion or trying to to write something that there was no contradictions in or anything like that there uh, they seem to feel very free each one of them in the way that they record anything now another thing to keep in mind as we read it is that some of the difference uh, between the four gospels in the way a particular teaching or a thing may be said in the, the wording of it can be explained by the fact that Jesus spoke this in Aramaic and it has been recorded in Greek and now is translated in English and so if, uh, if uh, each of these writers are sitting down and they're writing something in the Greek that was said in Aramaic well obviously with their different personalities they're going to choose different words and their own educational background is going to have a whole lot to do with the way it looks when it, when it, when it comes out in, in the final analysis. Now, when we start with the life of Jesus in Mark's account, he doesn't say anything about the birth. He gets right to the issue and he reads in verse 1 the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ the Son of God. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ the son of god and he gets right into the subject. All right? John in his introduction in John 1 in verses 1 through 18 he uses language that was in use and already developed in his day. And he said in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and he was with god in the beginning. John initially right away equates Jesus with god and said he existed with god in the beginning and that all things came about through him. Now, for years, John was the only one of these four gospels that the scholars put after 70 AD. In fact, all of John's writings were put after 70 AD. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were put before 70 AD, but John after. Well, the reason was not because of any empirical evidence. The reason was because this language of the use of the word and light and darkness to represent good and evil and all. It was believed, based on the information they had, that that language was not developed until after the destruction of Jerusalem and all, that that is when that type of language was developed and began to be used. Now, through archaeology, through the information that we've gathered from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that this language was fully developed and that kind of terminology was in use before the time of Jesus. And so the end result is now that more and more scholars are putting John before 70 AD just as the others. But the initial putting of John after 70 AD had nothing to do with any empirical evidence whatsoever. It was just that based on the material that they had outside the Bible, they thought this particular language was not developed at that time, and therefore John could not have written it at that time. And now based on the discoveries, and the information especially from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community, and the material left by the Essenes, we know that this material was fully developed in this type of language in use. In fact, all of the type of language that you find used was language that was used by the people of that particular day. And so, the majority of scholars now are putting John before 70 AD. Okay, now, Luke, in his introduction, tells you in Luke 1, 1 through 4, that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke tells you that many, now we, we have to guess at what he means by many, But many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled. Now, when you begin to read on the manuscripts of uh, Mark and and Matthew and Luke, you'll find that the majority of the scholars believe that there is another source that each of them are drawing from. And, And see, there's tremendous, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels because of the tremendous similarity between them, and then John's over here by itself. Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the ministry of Jesus in and around Galilee, primarily. John deals with his ministry in and around uh, Jerusalem, primarily. And there is tremendous difference in the various things that they deal with, in John and and the first three. And we'll get to this as we go through it, but... But the majority of scholars believe that there's still another source that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are drawing from, and in fact, many of these statements that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke were being circulated uh, as small documents, in other words, memorized statements, short statements, and then they will be put together, you know, by by these writers. And Luke tells you at the very first that many have undertaken to draw up an account of this material, and now that he is writing this to Theopolis. Notice also, Luke approaches this as a historian. Notice how difficult it would be for Luke to be dishonest, or to be wrong, and to get by with it. Because there's already accounts being circulated. And the information has already been preached, and Theopolis has already been converted. And this document that Luke writes, when it goes out, it's going to have to stand the test of comparison with the other documents and the, also the oral preaching that's taking place. The fact that it stands that test and is never challenged and never questioned and initially will be received as scripture and quoted from and endorsed and all says a whole lot for our, just with no more than that. That we've got all these documents floating around, all that oral information, all that preaching, and then this material will go out. And he tells you initially that he approaches it as a historian. Luke is a Gentile. He will write different than Matthew, Mark, or John, either one. He writes as a Gentile. He writes with the deepest vocabulary of of any of the writers. And and we can tell that it's written by an educated man, an educated man who's also a Gentile. Luke's two books, Luke and Acts, contain more information than that by any other writing in in, the, in other words, we think of Paul as having written most of the New Testament. But although Luke only wrote two books, there's as much information, as many words in those two books as there is in Paul's 13 letters. And so that you, Luke is the one. It's interesting that God chose a Gentile to write this tremendous chunk of the Bible. It's also interesting that the two most educated people uh, in the New Testament were Luke and Paul, and they do most of the writing. And then also the, another writer here, Matthew, to be a tax collector. Your tax collector of that day would have had more education than the, than the average, in, average individual. And so it is interesting from that standpoint, the same is true in the Old Testament. Uh, the most educated person to come out of Egypt was Moses, educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. And so he wasn't just a right man so far as his faith and all, he was absolutely the most educated person. The most educated, one of the most educated of all the prophets was Isaiah, who wrote that very big book of prophecy. And so, all the way through, that God seems to have had, Daniel was a well educated man. God seems to have had some well educated people that he used, and he uses their vocabulary and their thought processes and all in developing the, the materials. Another thing we can learn when we look at this is the very fact that you've got an educated Gentile who is so positive of these events, you think about Luke, he's not a Jew. He is an educated Gentile physician who has very carefully and meticulously searched out all the other written records available to him, who's come in contact with the Apostles, has been a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he is absolutely convinced of the truthfulness of this, and goes to the trouble to gather this material together and to write it. And here's Theopolis, by the by the fact that he uses most excellent Theopolis, that's like saying, Your Honor, that we don't know who Theopolis was, but we know he was a very prestigious individual. He was somebody that was in a high position, and this man has been converted. And so that in itself says something for the material itself and the way that it was going out and the type of minds that it was actually reaching. Alright, now. The genealogies of Jesus are given in uh, Luke and also in Matthew. Now Matthew begins with Abraham. Uh, That's the important thing so far as the uh, uh, Jew was concerned. And it's interesting that in this genealogy, we have uh, Ruth mentioned as a mother there. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess and we also have uh, uh, Uriah's wife, who was a Gentile woman mentioned. She was the mother of uh, Solomon. And then again we have uh, Boaz whose mother was uh, uh, Rahab mentioned in there. And so in the lineage we not only have the, although it's predominant Jewish, we also have some Gentiles uh, within, within the lineage itself. Okay now There's a difference between the genealogy in Matthew and Luke. And initially, from its inception, it was the belief in the church that uh, Matthew's genealogy was the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary, as it states there at the end, and that Luke's genealogy was the genealogy of Mary. Okay? And even though it starts off, he was a son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, that uh, the early church uh, thought of Healy as as Joseph's father-in-law, the father of Mary, and then, of course, that uh, he takes that genealogy all the way back, and then you find that at David, then on back it becomes the same, okay? But uh, the difference uh, is that David, uh, Mary's genealogy is traced back to David by way of Nathan, And then uh, Joseph's would be by way of of, uh, Solomon, the the king's. And so both of them, both Joseph and Mary, uh, in the lineage of David. And then you can see Luke, the Gentile, traces this lineage all the way back uh, to Adam and the the son of God. Okay, anybody with any uh, comments? so far any comments or questions over what we've got over anything to this
1: point? Where's the genealogy given in Luke? I I can't uh third
0: chapter right and by the way when we talk about an apparent contradiction uh you're reading that they give the genealogy and it says uh in Luke's genealogy he's the son so it was thought of Joseph the son of Heli And then you look at that genealogy, and there's a definite difference. And that difference is not explained in Matthew and Luke. Obviously, Matthew didn't copy off Luke, and Luke didn't copy off Matthew. Obviously, neither one of them thought about any contradiction. And it's interesting that in the early church, nobody spoke of any contradiction or anything like that. And so I'm saying that although you don't find that statement, that one was the genealogy of uh, Mary and one the genealogy of uh, Joseph. The fact that, that it, they didn't even bother the writers to do this and we can see it and it was completely accepted without any thought of contradiction and then the belief of the early church was the fact that this was the case. And, but yet again that's what I mean you've got an apparent contradiction but then you can, you can look and see well nobody ever thought of that as a contradiction they obviously didn't copy off one another and the people who were, that were there and received the book and copied it down and all uh, acknowledged it as the, as the genealogy of one and, and the genealogy of the other. And both wound up in the genealogy of David. Is
1: Matthew, did you say it's supposed to be in the genealogy
0: of Mary? No, Matthew of Joseph.
1: Well, you know, that seems odd. In Luke, it says he was thought to be the son. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Right. The son of Heli the son.
0: Right. Of... So it was thought of Joseph.
1: Yeah. And It then looks like that it goes back through Joseph. and.
0: No, Luke. it says he was the son, so it was thought, you know, of Joseph. But he really wasn't. And then I'm saying the reason they mentioned that Joseph, their are reckoning of of, linea- of the genealogy was always through the male, always mm-hmm. through the male, And so they put it that way. And then over here though, when you read in Matthew's account, uh, you come all the way down to uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, and it states it plain, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, called the Christ. And then here it says, he was the son, so it was thought. joseph the son of heli and i'm saying that that in the early church among the first people that received it uh, you know that was never a question that uh they recognized that genealogy as being the genealogy of mary and the one in matthew of joseph
1: it seems like of joseph though doesn't it because it says the son of heli and the son of no it says
0: that he was a son so it was thought of joseph the son but what i'm saying is that you have an apparent contradiction there, when you, when you just read it, neither one of them bothered to explain why that's different. But when you go back, you found that it was never challenged. In other words, uh, they saw that difference. It was never challenged. And the initial people that it went to recognized that as being the genealogy of Mary and the other the genealogy. In other words, I'm saying you're dependent upon them, that you can't just read that and, and, and say one way or the other. Uh, you do know that from what you study of the Jews that their genealogy was was carried through the male. You know his, that's why all the way through you find the the men. It's very unusual to even find the woman mentioned at all. Uh, and, and the few times there's a woman mentioned, is is an unusual situation. For example, Ruth is mentioned, but she's a Moabitess, and so it says the mother, or wife of Ruth. And then when it the same thing when it refers to uh, the wife of Uriah, the fact she was not a Jew. And then the same with Rahab, so I'm saying there's only three times a woman is mentioned, and each time it's a very unique situation, but then the man is mentioned that it's rendered through her, but the Jew rendered his lineage through the male, not the female
1: could could it have been possible that they both were through Joseph, but they used different people different
0: you
1: know. generations
0: Mm-mm. this goes straight back, each of them go back to David. Yeah. And, and uh, you've got a totally different way. Of, one of them goes back uh, by way of his son Nathan, and the other goes back by way of his son Solomon. And two, but I'm saying that when you read that, if you didn't know anything other than what was there, you have an apparent contradiction. But then when you read from other sources, you find number one, that the Jew counted his genealogy only from the male, not the female. And then, number two, you find that the early church received this and recognized it as the genealogy of uh, Joseph uh, and the genealogy of Mary. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it was was never even challenged or questioned in any way. And again, the apparent contradiction is good in that right at the very first you can see that nobody is trying to copy anything. Nobody is trying. They don't even explain it. There, there's no explanation in there. there. With no explanation, there was the assumption on each person that the material that people had and were operating on would allow them to fully understand what was here. And see, that's <clears throat> keep in mind that when we read uh, that a lot of things in the Bible, that the initial people received that as it was written with the assumption that they already knew certain materials that you and I have to go back and study in order to acquaint ourselves with.
1: In Luke where it says he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Right. The son In other words,
0: he wasn't really the son of Joseph. Yeah, I know. yeah, Right. The
1: son of Heli? Yeah. So was Heli Joseph's father?
0: Father-in-law. It was Mary's father. father. Of Mary.
1: Oh, okay.
0: See what I'm saying is, they don't, uh, the Jew did not render a genealogy through the woman. The genealogy was counted through the man, okay. and that's why the Joseph is there, both times. But yet you have the two genealogies. But I'm saying that neither one of them even bothers to explain this. Obviously, nobody's copying off anything, and yet I'm saying that when it went initially out, the people that it initially went to didn't see any contradiction at all there. So obviously, they were well of the well aware of the information. And also, see, until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D your Jewish families, they knew their genealogy and they kept their you know their family tree.
1: Because otherwise you would have a contradiction because in Matthew it says, and Jacob the father of Joseph, right. the husband of Mary, who sure. was
0: born. Well, what so you it have, says
1: Jacob was Joseph's father.
0: Right. And here it says here it Joseph, says the son the of son hela, hela. Alright, right. what you time. mean by apparent contradiction is something that upon first glance seems to be a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and gather all the information. And see the first piece of information you gather is that the Jew did not count genealogy through the woman. He he didn't do it. He was able to only count count it through the male. And you've got two different genealogies there. Then we go back and we find that the early church, just the initial people received that without seeing any contradiction at all. Well they're not stupid. They saw that just like the difference just like you and I did. They didn't see any contradiction at all. And then we go back and we look at the thinking of the, the early church on that and they were unanimous in their thinking that, that one was the genealogy of Mary the other the genealogy of, of Joseph.
1: And maybe the reason he did that too in Luke is because where it says he was the son so it was thought right. of Joseph. Right. And so they knew he was the son of Mary so they traced him through Mary, right?
0: Well they just, it, that was Luke's choice.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, I'm saying Luke writes as a Gentile. And, and Matthew is writing as a Jew, and, you see a, and Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. In other words, I don't think Luke cared what Matthew did, or Matthew cared what Luke did. But, that in the way Luke recorded this genealogy, you see a Gentile historian's approach to it. And, and the way Matthew approached it, you see a Jewish uh, approach to it, you know. It's just the, the, the very difference within the personality of the individual and their background. Okay, any other... Okay, now, notice some things as we go through Let's just notice just a, couple of, a couple of points here, and then we'll end it for tonight. First of all, the very factual way that it's given. In other words, each of that they give two genealogies that can be checked out in that day. Okay, they're not trying to hide anything. They give a whole list of names, that you can go and check, check out <clears throat> if you want to prove whether or not Jesus was in that genealogy. Now, in Luke 1, in 5-17, through 17, where it records John's birth, it says, in the time of Herod, <clears throat> king of Judea, there a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, a descendant of Aaron, So look at all the facts that Luke gives you to work with if you're one of the initial people that has received this, like uh, Theopolis. That in the time of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, a priest named Zechariah, the priestly division that he belonged to, and his wife Elizabeth, and she was a descendant of Aaron. And then it tells about the people and then the fact that the angel of the Lord appeared, appeared to him. All right, all the way through we're going to find this kind of thing that when we have an event, that names, places, time, is going to be given in such a way that it can be checked out. And, in other words, that and this is going to be true all the way through of the material, that it's going to be given in such a way that the material can be challenged and checked out. Now, another thing to note is, notice the uh, angel appears and talks with him, and he identifies himself as Gabriel. But then as we read further, we find out in that uh, Luke 1, 26 through 38, I don't know the exact verse because of the way it's put here, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. In other words, when the angel talked to him, it wasn't like the angel just coming up and speaking, and even in the form of a man or anything like that, the angel was seen in a vision. Most of the time, when you read about an angel appearing to somebody, if you read the entire context, Very carefully, you'll find that it was actually a vision or a dream and that angels talked to him. And so it was actually a vision that the angel talked to him. Uh, Over here, let's see if I can find another one. Uh, When Joseph is told of the conception, in Matthew 1, 18-25, remember the angel appears and talks to Joseph, but notice it says, After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And so there again, the angel appeared to him in a dream. All right, and let's see, another, uh, let see if I can find another example. Right, and, uh when Joseph is told to, to uh, take Jesus and go into Egypt because of the uh, uh, Herod taking the life of children trying to get to this Messiah that's been born, the one he been, has been told is the Messiah. In Matthew 2, 13 and 15, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And then again, in Matthew 2, 1923, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is I read the the Old Testament through, and I would really never noticed it that much until uh, Lambs in his notes pointed it out, that when the angel spoke, or when there was... Uh, the God was speaking to somebody or when some particular event happened that was with deity or an angel that if you read it very carefully and the, the entire context it's actually taking place in the mind of that person in a vision and in a dream and it's actually in the, the even uh, many times the sacrifices and the events and all that take place are actually taking place in a vision or in a dream and the prophecies where the prophets speak of things to happen they have actually been spoken to in a dream or a vision and they have seen it. Just like you and I watching TV or having a dream. And then they record it using their own intelligence and their own vocabulary and all. They are simply recording what they have seen in that vision. Well remember with John in Revelation the same thing happens. John is using his own vocabulary and he is recording what he has seen in a vision. And then putting that down. But almost invariably if if the context gives you enough information when the angel is speaking to the person it will be in a a vision or a dream, they are used in a synonymous way. Okay, any uh, comments or questions or anything on what we've covered tonight? Okay, uh, next week we'll start then uh, right here with using the Chronological Bible and we'll proceed to go through with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the same time and then also as we go that uh, we'll bring in information about the manuscripts and we'll look very carefully at uh, the events where each one records the same event and then also where they record different uh, events and also where they record something that seems to be in an apparent contradictory way and look at the context going going all the way through this.